ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Greetings, I'm Tom Gilson. Today on ID the Future, we hear from mathematician, polymath, Darwin critic, and Discovery Institute senior fellow David Berlinski, speaking from his home in Paris with Wesley J. Smith, who's host of the Humanize podcast. It's a podcast on human exceptionalism that's also centered here at the Discovery Institute. Human exceptionalism was the framework on which their conversation was hung, but the ground they covered, well, it's truly astonishing, and you'll enjoy listening in as they talk. Welcome to Humanize from Discovery Institute's Center on Human Exceptionalism, where human rights meet human responsibilities. We speak with writers, thinkers, and newsmakers on the controversial issues of human life and human thriving that impact our daily lives. We are exceptional as creatures in the cosmos, as equal members of the human family, and as ethical beings. Humanize explores some of the fundamental questions. How do we thrive? How do we live well and care for what we've inherited? How do we act responsibly with one another and in the wider world? And how do we conserve the good things of this life for the future? We matter. Our actions matter. Let's get into it. I'm Wesley J. Smith, and this is Humanize. We live in intellectually mediocre times when commitment to true debate as a means of ascertaining truth and the understanding that reasonable people can have different opinions has been replaced by a desire among the culturally powerful to stifle heterodox thought and punish unapproved belief. My guest today refuses to yield to such intellectual straitjacketing. A true polymath, he advocates heterodox ideas and thought, ranging from questioning Darwinism to espousing the once self-evident truth that there is such a thing as human nature. David Berlinski received his Ph.D. in philosophy from Princeton University and was later a postdoctoral fellow in mathematics and molecular biology at Columbia University. He is currently a senior fellow at the Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture. Dr. Berlinski has authored works on systems analysis, differential topology, theoretical biology, analytic philosophy, and the philosophy of mathematics, as well as three novels. He has also taught philosophy, mathematics, and English at such universities as Stanford, Rutgers, the City University of New York, and the University de Paris. In addition, he has held research fellowships at the International Institute for Applied Systems Analysis in Austria and the Institute de Haute Etudes scientifique, my French stinks, in France. Recent articles by Dr. Berlinski have been featured in Commentary, Forbes, ASAP, and the Boston Review. Two of his articles on the origins of the mind and what brings a world into being have been anthologized in the Best American Science Writing of 2005. He is the author of numerous books, including A Tour of Calculus, The Advent of Algorithm, Newton's Gift, A Short History of Mathematics, The Devil's Delusion, Atheism and Its Scientific Pretensions, The King of Infinite Space, Euclid and His Elements, and his most recent, Human Nature, published in 2019. 
He is also the author of Too Many Essays to Count and the subject of innumerable interviews. Finally, as this conversation will make very clear, he's a hell of a lot smarter than I am. David, welcome to Humanize. Thank you very much, and thank you for that splendid introduction. I'd love to meet this guy, too. <laughs> let me tell you. <laughs> you know, I like uh, to let my uh, listeners uh, learn about my guests as human beings. You've had a very interesting story, including, I believe, that your parents not only escaped Nazi Germany, but occupied France. Tell us that story. Well, both of my parents were musicians, and I grew up in Leipzig in Germany. And uh, they had an excellent musical education. And in 1932, my father realized they had to get out of Germany. Their lives were in danger. He was very prophetic. This was 1932, remember? Yeah, that's before Hitler came to power. It was, just before Hitler came to power. And many German Jews said, oh, this will all blow over. And my father said, no, it's going to end in mass murder. 1932. Wow. So they, they emigrated to France. And they became students all over again. My father studied with Nadia Boulanger and Alfred Coteau. He was an accomplished pianist, a concert pianist, and so was my mother. And they loved, uh, loved France. And in 1938, my father again said, war is coming. And he responded by joining the Foreign Legion. Because the Foreign Legion offered every one of its volunteers citizenship after five years of service. He participated in the battle for France in 1940, and unfortunately, the French army collapsed. So the promise of citizenship was null and void. It might be revivable today, I don't know. And uh, because my father knew very well that both he and my mother were on the Gestapo lists, they had to flee France, which was a nightmare in 1940. Um, my father fled from the Belgian border on foot to Marseille, and uh, he and my mother spent a year in Marseille assembling travel documents with the help of Varian Fry, whom Eleanor Roosevelt commissioned to help German Jewish intellectuals flee Europe. They managed to escape from France into Spain, and then from Spain into Portugal, where they, in 1941, caught virtually the last ship out of Europe, the last passenger ship out of Europe. Around wow. Cuba and then in New York. It was an incredible accomplishment getting out alive. That is a story of human survival. It almost sounds like the movie Casablanca. It's much grimmer. <laughs> yeah. Because so many people did not make it out alive. Yeah, that's right. Marseille. Occupied France and Marseille. So when they, they reached New York, they had $10 between them. Wow. And that's how they began their American life. And I was born shortly thereafter. Boy, life would have been, you might not be here, obviously, if they hadn't caught that boat. I would not have been. There's no question about it. Had my parents been captured by the Gestapo, their lives would have come to an end. And mine too. There's just no question about that. Yeah, just just stunning. Uh, you began your career in mathematics and molecular biology, uh, and you've also been involved in philosophy and so forth. Those are almost... Um, a dichotomous, right? I mean, the, but math is an objective discipline, meaning if a formula works, it works. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But philosophy is subjective. Do you? How do you meld those two? It's a good question, and it's not easy. I'm not sure I've been successful. When I was in, uh, in college, I, I went to Columbia College, I studied history. 
Uh, I had no interest, no real interest in mathematics. I had no real interest in philosophy. It was in graduate school in philosophy that I developed an interest, oddly enough, in mathematics. That was through taking Alonzo Church's graduate-level course in mathematical logic. I didn't understand a word, but I recognized a very powerful subject and a very attractive subject at the same time. And then when I got out to Stanford, I teamed up with a mathematician and we collaborated together for the three years that I was an assistant professor at Stanford. I have gone back to philosophy. It remains a, an aching kind of intellectual pursuit because no matter how I twist it and turn it, I never am quite satisfied either with the positions that I've reached or even more obviously with the positions that other people have reached. On the other hand, whenever I, I return to mathematics, I have a feeling this is an intrinsically powerful, worthwhile endeavor. And if only you stick to it, you will reach the kind of understanding that I seem never to have reached in philosophy. Well, how can, how can you uh, reach that kind of understanding in philosophy? I mean, the, the, those are philosophy by definition is not ever going to be final, but I assume that, and I'm not a mathematician, but I assume that at least in mathematics, when you find a formula that is solved, that's it, right? Well, to a certain extent, there is that that's it phenomenon in, in mathematics. That's, that's certainly true. And it, it is also true that many, many areas in philosophy are exactly as perennially problematic as you've, you've just suggested. On the other hand, I do think that there has been, since, say, 1940, 1950, a certain kind of appreciation of what it would take to solve certain kinds of problems in philosophy. And that's quite rewarding. It's quite interesting. At the same time, there is a recognition that when we turn to such problems as consciousness or free will, We've made no progress whatsoever since the Greeks. It's, it's a hopeless model. But the areas of philosophy, analytic philosophy, say, in which I think there has been a certain amount of clarification, still, to my mind, do not give me the kind of intellectual rewards I can get from mathematics. It's a, it's a different approach, a different attitude. Perhaps it's my own lack of philosophical imagination. I don't know. It's possible. I doubt that. <laughs> I didn't know there was such a thing as the philosophy of mathematics. What is that? Well, nobody really understands in a very deep way, first, how it is that human beings have acquired a massive amount of mathematical knowledge. And second, what it is that mathematics actually describes. I mean, you can begin at the very beginning. What on earth is a number? One, two, three. I mean, we, we know what numbers are intuitively and instinctively. We're born knowing the numbers, at least the natural numbers. But it's a quite different thing to ask, what is it that we're born knowing? Are these platonic objects existing in some metaphysical realm that we can only investigate through inference? Do we have direct insight into the numbers? Do the numbers exist in space and time? Was there a time before the time the number one existed? It doesn't seem like a very profitable question because it involves you immediately in the circularity um, of um, determining a time in which the numbers could not have existed. Well, how far back in the past was that, and how do you what what do you use to measure that? It does. 
I'm not saying this can't be analyzed more successfully, but it does not seem a very successful strategy to talk about the numbers the way we would talk about eggs, the day of production of an egg. Well, the numbers don't seem to have dates of production, nor do they seem to expire. Um, on the other hand, just how, given our very limited cognitive apparatus, do we make contact with these apparently eternal objects that are just existing? You mean these three are, is always three is what you're saying? Yeah. Well, it, it, it always is a temporal adverb or adjective. It's not that it's always as opposed to not being always. It exists in a realm in which temporal distinctions don't make a whole lot of sense. No matter how far back you want to go, it doesn't seem coherent to say, well, there were no numbers then. Yeah. Number one didn't exist. Nor does it seem coherent to say there's a possible world in which two plus two equals four was not yet true. Yeah, that's that's interesting. On the other hand, zero didn't always, well, it always existed, you're saying, but we just didn't know it? Well, zero always existed. It has to exist for mathematical reasons. What was lacking was an adequate notation for zero. And that's typical throughout mathematics. For a very long time, we had no notation for the complex numbers either. As a matter of fact, there are whole civilizations which have never gone beyond one, two, three, four. The, fraction, the fractions remaining just out of sight with respect to their notational systems or their intellectual graphs. We're going to get into human nature and so forth a little later. This raises a question in my mind. Do animals have a sense of numbers? They seem to have a limited sense of numbers. There are experiments with crows, very clever birds, by the way, crows, ravens, even dogs, not so much cats, where there seems to be at least the distinction, an accessible distinction between one thing and another, some grasp of the number one. Um, the beginning of numbers was the beginning of things, Tyria Schott said in the 12th century, and he was right. Without some sense of identity and individuation, most of the higher mammals simply couldn't exist. They couldn't tell one thing apart from another. But it, uh, it does seem to be the case that None of the animals that have been carefully studied seems to have a real grasp of the natural numbers. The fundamental fact about the natural numbers, they just go on and on and on. There's no greatest natural number. Hmm. You can have a pooch that responds to one, two, and three, bring me three balls. And some very clever border collies, for example, will, will be able to execute a task like that. But ask the same pooch. Poochie, is there a greatest number? They'll just look up at you. It's not that he is unwilling, he is unable to answer the question because the cognitive apparatus of the dog does not encompass the distinction we make when we talk about the numbers. Namely, they're infinite. But that, that dog would know how many sheep he was supposed to hurt. It could be. He would have a sense of how many roughly. I don't know whether he would be able to count 279 sheep. Yeah. But he would know... A big, a big collection of sheep from a small collection. But yeah. that's fun. Yeah. Compared to things. You know, um, <laughs> I think you could do a whole show on this because uh, I've never thought about that before. But it really just opens up, you know, my eyes to how much um, I don't know and how much I haven't contemplated. It's really remarkable. Uh, I, I've always thought 
at least in the, let's say in the last 20 years or so, that the most important human endeavor, uh, once we get past survival, is the search for truth. And as I, I spent the last few days really looking into your career, things you've written and so forth, that really seems to have been your focus too. It sounds, um, look, look, Wesley, if you want to say that, who am I to, to bicker in the background? Uh, if you want to add that I, I possess a stunning physical beauty, I'm not going to deny that either. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> no, I know you didn't. But the truth is that it's just a little too grand. I, I don't think it was as much a search for truth as, uh, first, uh, a real sense of curiosity, which I think most people have. And why does this work in the way it does? And it was never a physical sense of curiosity. I was never for a moment interest why, interested in the fact that an object unsupported falls toward the center of the earth. I was always perfectly satisfied with the explanation, well, that's where it belongs, the Aristotelian explanation. But mathematics and logic were completely different. Uh, I, I really found those immensely, immensely interesting. I still do. I still do. Um, I'm just spending a, a wonderful time uh, mastering the Borel-Cantelli level, which is a wonderful piece of probability, which for some reason or another I, I never really closely studied. It's, it's, just, uh, it's just magic to really get into it. All right, for you, but you have to tell me what that is. <laughs> it's, it's very simple. You know about them monkeys, right? They're sitting at a typewriter. Are they apt to compose Hamlet? Right. No. Yeah, no. Uh, given an unlimited amount of time, just lots and lots of time. And if the answer is yes, are they apt to do it again and again and again? Well, the Borel-Cantelli uh, Borel lemma tells you, yes, the monkeys will get Hamlet. I mean, you can wait a long time before the monkeys get anywhere. But sooner or later, by lucky accident, they'll get Hamlet. And if they get it once, they'll get it repeatedly, infinitely many times. It is not a particularly practical theorem. But it's fascinating. It's fascinating that in the 20th century, we have developed analytical tools to investigate infinite sequences of events. I find it just a, a remarkable achievement of the human race, just a remarkable achievement. I was interested in this quote from you. You live near Notre Dame uh, Cathedral, and after it burned, you wrote, quote, the destructive destruction of Notre Dame evoked an almost universal sense of cultural horror that a structure of comparable grandeur lay completely beyond our collective competence, close quote. Well, that's really depressing, but is it really beyond our competence or is it beyond our interest? It's a good question. Um, I think it's beyond both. I think that even if we had architects of genius, like the men who built Notre Dame in the 12th century, or Schaffer, for that matter. Um, the collective will to create a structure like that, which is financial, moral, ethical, and religious, and of course, aesthetic, is just lacking. Uh, you go through France, where I live, uh, you look at any building constructed after 1945, say, and it's dreadful. And everyone recognizes it's dreadful, and no one really knows what to do about remedying the aesthetic defect which runs right like a scar through French life. 
in such a way that we could again construct buildings that are at least rewarding to look at, let alone magnificent like Notre Dame, just rewarding to look at. Uh, it's, a, it's a very serious problem in contemporary life. I, I think lots of people have said the same thing, and I agree with them. Well, they agree with me. Take your pick. <laughs> but, uh, one of the striking features of modern technological society is the absence architecturally, or in terms of urban planning, of the genius that made possible certain constructions and certain urban panoramas in the 12th, 13th, right up to the 19th century. That seems to have disappeared. And I've spoken with lots of people, including good architects, asked them the question, how is it that we cannot build as well as even bad builders in the 19th century, let alone magnificent architects of the 16th century Italian Renaissance, or the high Gothic architects? And no one has an answer that is completely satisfying to my it, way of thinking. It has to be a cultural issue, because if you take a look, just for example, in Rome, at, I guess it's the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier uh, created by uh, uh, Mussolini, it's a brutal building, and it's right next to the uh, Forum, where you have, watch, you know, the ruins are actually far more beautiful than uh, of ancient Rome than that, that white uh, catastrophe. So maybe it has to do with culture. It's true throughout Europe. You'll, you'll see a brutal, stupid, ignominious building. And within the same panorama, something exquisite from one or two or eight centuries ago. Italian villages, French and Italian villages, which are just adorable, charming. You want to live there. You want to walk the streets. Human in its proportion. Not extravagant in the architecture, but absolutely captivating and inviting. And you look at a modern French suburb, it's just hideous. Yes. Just hideous. And the same is true here in the United States, I think. I'm afraid so. I mean, you look at the strip malls. <laughs> it, just, it really is uh, depressing. Yeah. I agree completely, but what I lack, and I wish I had, was someone to tell me, very interesting, Dave, you put your finger on something, you haven't answered the question, why has this happened, but here is the answer. I don't have that. Yeah, I, I don't have it either. Are you, are you working on that issue and that thought? No, not really. First of all, I don't know enough about architecture to be authoritative and speaking. All I can do is record my impressions, the impressions of everybody around me. Nobody really disagrees, for example, yeah. with the proposition that Paris is being made uglier, that the, the race to obliterate the skyline with skyscrapers is proceeding apace. The 15th of Hondismont is filled with skyscrapers. There are two horrible monstrosities, excuse me, almost in the center of Paris. The Tour Montparnasse is one, and the tower at the University of Paris in Jussieu is another. I taught there. I know exactly how ugly the building is. Um, but beyond that, the superficial observation and the uh, indignation that it provokes are as far as anyone can get. Look, I was, I, I'm involved with some, you know, one of these uh, good-thinking organizations to preserve Paris, preserve the architectural integrity of Paris, and uh, we get nowhere. Let's move to uh, your critiques of science, uh, contemporarily uh, performed. You write often about the corruption of science as becoming ideological, which I, I happen to agree with that. I think that's the problem, and that's why people are losing trust in science. But in, in the book Human Nature, you write um, that the 21st century is secular and scientific, and then you say, 
quote, if I sometimes write to deplore the faith, it is because I am among the faithful, close quote. I found that very striking. I mean, you, you've been quite um, pointed in your criticism of uh, how science has become ideological or even a religion, and yet you say you also are uh, of that flock, if you will. That, that doesn't make um, quite some sense to me. Well, take it as a confession. You know, if a man is trapped in an avalanche, hurtling downhill, he doesn't have access to a position outside the avalanche by which he can describe it properly. It always has to be mittendrin, as the Germans say, from the middle. I, I do think it's important to recognize certain overwhelming facts about contemporary orthodoxies, namely that they are immensely powerful, not dismissible. I'm talking about the orthodoxy that assigns to theoretical physics the grandeur of providing the sole explanation for the physical world. It is not a form of arrogance or foolishness when physicists make that claim. Nor is it a form of self-delusion, because theoretical physics is an incredibly powerful discipline, second only to mathematics, which is the richest body of thought the human race has ever accomplished. So uh, when I say I'm of the faith or in the middle, I don't have a position beyond, say, a man on a ledge can watch an avalanche descending. I don't have that ledge. I find myself in the middle and constantly uh, reacting to circumstances without a superior position of judgment. Could you say, it seems to me, as you were just talking, uh, Martin Luther popped into my head, that Martin Luther was a, uh, and of course that had to do with Catholicism and religious faith, but he was of that faith but he continually found problems with that faith, so he was trying to help. I think that's dead right. That's dead right. That perhaps, perhaps Martin Luther is too extravagant a comparison, but that idea of being within a system of thought and criticizing at the same time. You know, Quine had a, a, a very lovely metaphor. He compared it to being uh, in a lifeboat and repairing the lifeboat as you depended on the lifeboat for survival. Deep down, we're all within the folds of uh, an immensely powerful author. Uh, my mentor, I don't know if you know this, uh, I was, um, I've written four books with Ralph Nader. And um, I sat at uh, Ralph Nader's knee, uh, figuratively speaking. And he once said something to me that I think is, is equivalent. He said, we're all taught to think corporate. In other words, even though we, even Ralph, who of course uh, invades against corporations, big corporations all the time, even he, it's like the fish is in the water. You, you, it is just part of our, our, our environment, and we all are part of it. I think that's true. It's, 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 um, it's not only a question of environment. It is simply not possible in the 21st century to say, well, I don't believe in physics. It's not yeah. possible to say that. It's not possible to say, well, I don't believe in molecular biology. Of course, you'll always find a lunatic who says that. But we're talking about responsible intellectual engagement of the kind we'd like to think we ourselves are undertaking. It's not possible to disengage from 
the orthodoxies of physics or mathematics. No one who claims to have a superior system of real analysis, who doesn't know any mathematics, really has anything of the sort. So it's enveloping. And, and I think that it is the better part of wisdom to recognize the force of the scientific revolution, which, in, to my way of thinking, is the most important revolution that's ever taken place, far it, more important than the French or Russian revolutions. Is the um, faith, quote-unquote, that you're uh, criticizing scientism? In other so, words, people, and I've read, you've written about this, people trying to uh, discern, uh, say that, you know, what they, the discoveries of science can teach us things like right and wrong and, and how we're supposed to live and so forth. Yeah, I think if, if, if that is what scientism means, of course, I reject it. But I think almost everyone does. Not even the greatest of the great physicists are going to tell you, study quantum mechanics and you'll learn the difference between right and wrong. Um, the only people like Sam Harris think there is a, a continuous scheme between what the sciences establish and what the serious problems of life are. I would never say the sciences address the serious problems of life. That's something quite different. The sciences are, of course, a human endeavor. They have their scope, but also their limitations. There's no question about that. But talking about the physical world, we have no choice but to accept the vocabulary and the ideas of modern theoretical physics. Talking about mathematics, we have no choice but to accept a magnificent tradition of accumulated wisdom. You know, when people are saying things like, well, listen to the science, or, um, you know, the scientific consensus says such and such, that's actually anti-science to me. You know, listen to the science is always a parochial, a parochial appeal. Somebody is out to get something by um, expressing the view that we ought to listen to the science. I mean, science is not a listenable event. Science yeah. is a body of theories. Uh, on, on some very difficult practical questions, unfortunately, because these questions are very far from the center of the sciences, global warming, for example, COVID-19 is another example, vaccine effectiveness is a third example, the sciences do not invariably speak with a unified voice. But we have to accept that too. But you see the people who are in power trying to pretend that it does. Yeah, well, you know. And, and it's a form, it seems to me it's a form of uh, trying to establish a technocracy. It's about political power many times, not about, quote, what is, is and what isn't. I think you may well be right. I mean, it's a very useful cudgel, isn't it? So yes. I want to shut someone up. I'll just say, well, science is against you. There's very little you can do by way of response. It is notable, though, that the people who directly appeal to science as a source of authority generally know very little about the sciences they're appealing to. <laughs> that's, that's very true. <laughs> I want to read something else you wrote. Um, you talk about in, in uh, uh, human nature that there is a um, universal civilization that we're developing. And here's what you wrote. The universal civilization requires an elaborate bureaucracy and a rational legal system enforcing the law of contracts. It requires a scientific elite. It requires science as a source of awe. And it requires relatively free markets. A doggish form of secular humanism prevails throughout. These are ideas, all of them, that invite a certain cynical asperity. 
whatever else it may be, the universal civilization is emotionally and aesthetically repellent, close quote. That's a powerful statement. What is the universal civilization? Why uh, has it developed? And then I have a question for you about um, whether that would apply universally. The idea of universal civilization, those words I took from uh, B.S. Naipaul, who took them from the Yale historian, it is the uh, dawning sense, or it represents the dawning sense, that in order to achieve a certain kind of society, say a society that has escaped the Malthusian trap, where birth rates collapse directly after food supplies give out, society of a certain, certain degree of physical comfort, like the United States, like Western Europe, um, it is necessary to um, put your faith really in one system, because competitive systems have proven themselves incapable of achieving these ends. And I've gone through a list of things that are part of the, the universal civilization. And I think it's correct to talk in these terms because every civilization that's achieved a certain degree of technical sophistication has followed the same basic rules. We know from the 20th century that a communist system, for example, and this is something that was only discovered historically, it's not predicted in advance, seems incapable of achieving that degree of, uh, of uh, political competence, that degree of, of wealth. Uh, a system without any kind of legal structure equally seems incapable of, of producing a civilization of that degree of wealth, ease, and comfort. And you can go through the list. A civilization without science cannot master the technological basics without a scientific background. So these are all necessary components of the universal civilization, and there really does seem to be only one universal civilization, just as human beings are the only species on the planet with the properties they have, for example, language or thought. So a civilization in this sense, not the Roman sense, not the Greek sense, not the Chinese sense, but the modern sense of the civilization that it is, productively wealthy at a certain level of ease and comfort and technological sophistication and medical capabilities, that's achievable only in terms of one form of organization. I think that's probably true. I, I don't have proof, goodness knows, but I think it's, it's probably true. And it it also seems to me to have the seeds of its own destruction because when we get that successful, we cease to be willing to accept risk and peril. I'm not sure risk and peril are the, the, the crucial issues. There's plenty of risk in the modern world. There's plenty of peril. Um, I think the repellent aspect of modern civilization, it's in part aesthetic, it's in part religious, it's in part social, uh, is much more compelling as animadversions. Because along with the universal civilization goes a certain, I think, well-merited indifference to age-old structures of human life with certain kinds of painful commitments that have to be made. For example, marriage and the family. Uh, universal civilizations tend overwhelmingly to be secular, and secular civilizations tend to be corrosive of all social bonds. 
when Marx had uh, a, a very pregnant aphorism, everything, uh, everything sacred is profaned. Are you saying that the things that create the universal civilization, that actually help it become successful, that once it attains that level of um, acceptance, that it actually begins to uh, corrupt itself and disintegrate because it, it does away with some of the things that are required to, to go there? Absolutely. That's exactly right. I think that's exactly right. It's a corrosive, self-abnegating process. And I think we're in that that uh, part of the cycle right now. Um, and, and I think that also may be part of the reason why Notre Dame could never be uh, built today. But also part of the reason that the fire of Notre Dame evoked such cultural horror. Yes, yes. Everybody recognized you know, something irreplaceable is being destroyed in front of our eyes. It was easy to see. That's why the cultural horror. The yeah. fact that family, human family, is being destroyed in front of our eyes, wherever secular regimes hold sway, it's much more difficult to see. Because to it takes more time. It takes more time, and you have to look carefully at statistics. And, and more people are, are given a stake in that, uh, for example, promiscuity and so forth, and they, they come to believe that, hey, there's something in this for me when it's actually destroying them. Absolutely. We see that as, a, as a, an ongoing process. But we only see it dimly. Uh, nobody is brought face-to-face -face with other parts of the fire-consuming civilization the way they were brought face-to-face -face with the fire of Notre Dame. The, the one country I think that challenges uh, part of what you were saying is China today. Uh, China has moved away from pure communism. It's actually closer to fascism, I think, because it's allowed a free market. Uh, and that has raised standard of living. Certainly, relatively speaking, the Chinese people uh, are better off than they were under Mao, no question about it. Um, but it has not led to any political freedom there. In fact, quite the contrary, it has led to increased autocracy. And that kind of um, approach, the technocracy, the autocracy that China, uh, pure evil, I mean, we don't have time to get into it today, but the genocide of the Uyghurs, for example, um, there is, it seems to me that some in the West are actually looking at that model, not the genocide part, but the, the kind of uh, top-down uh, uh, ruling part and saying, hey, that actually would work better. I mean, Thomas Friedman, the New York Times columnist, uh, actually complimented China because their ability to fight global warming was superior because they didn't have to deal with that messy democracy stuff. And China does not have the rule of law. I think, I think those points are right. It is certainly no part of the brief I wanted to present to the court that the universal civilization necessarily is one that's democratic, or even necessarily is one with a great deal of freedom. Uh, the example of China, unfortunately, suggests that, you, yes, you can build a modern global civilization, uh, very satisfying or, or satisfactory to its inhabitants, unless you're unfortunate in being among the Uyghurs, for example, or any other persecuted minority, without the apparatus of a modern democratic state. It's, it's possible. Universal civilization is, um, I, I think, far more an administrative idea than it is a liberal democratic idea. It's a technocracy idea. 
It's it's some in some sense I think that's right. Rule by experts, and then it's a bu- and then it's bureaucratic because you end up with a, a whole uh, most people being in a dependency circumstance. Then you you have to hire the bureaucrats to create the means of taking care of the people who are so dependent, and and uh, it really does lead to um, I think a uh, a loss of human equality. It helps. It helps erode that sense. But but bear in mind, all of these ideas, it seems to me, are are um, quite speculative. I would never I would never begin to suggest a, a degree of confidence that I have in these ideas beyond what I've suggested already. That it, it does seem to me that there's a convergence on a certain administrative solution to an age-old problem. And I, I wouldn't, uh, I certainly don't commend the universal civilization. Right. I, I'm not willing to live beyond it either. I'm not going to go out in the woods and uh, yeah. go eat berries and hunt, uh, hunt for animals or fish in the streams. That, that's abhorrent to me. It, it, what, I, what I'm getting from you is a, uh, I think it's important for anyone who wants to um, think deeply about uh, ultimate issues there's a sense of humility um, that you express I, that I find uh, quite a, quite appropriate in the sense that you're not saying, I have the answers. You're saying, I have the questions. I, 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 I would commend my outstanding sense of humility. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but that's exactly right. I, I think I'm in the position... That deep down we're all in the same position. We're we're busy asking a lot of questions. The questions are good. The questions are bad. But sometimes they're also important. They're important about with respect to the way we live. And I think uh, there are precious few answers available. You know, there's nothing nothing in in human nature or human society suggests that the level of sophistication we reach in mathematics or theoretical physics is accessible to us when we discuss politics, ethics, intellectual life generally, history. These are completely different subjects, and we shouldn't say that until we've reached that level of assuredness that we have in talking about the standard model of particle physics, we cannot ask questions about, say, the history of the 20th century. That's just foolishness. We, we have to ask those questions. That was David Berlinski and Wesley J. Smith in the first part of a conversation originally presented on Wesley Smith's Humanized podcast. You can find more like it by visiting the podcast website at humanize.show. That's H-U-M-A-N-I-Z-E dot show. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.